Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now before we get started on what we're talking about today, I wanted to remind everybody to go listen to the previous episode, which is all about a little known, but should be better known, American animation called Pantheon. And if you're like, I don't know, trust me, just, just listen to my podcast on it the episode on it, rather, in whatever feed you're using to listen to me right now. And then, if I don't inspire you to give it a shot, still still maybe try the first episode. It, it, it scratches that modern cyberpunk itch in a real way. And um, I, that's, that's the most I can sell you on it. But one of the reasons why I'm making, it, why I'm making the, that announcement on this episode is because of what we're going to be talking about this episode. I, I hope this one does numbers. Um, but if you are listening to this and you listened to the last episode, f- first off, thank you for your trust in me. I will f- do my best not to misplace it. But second off, this ne- the next Sunday edition, if everything goes well, will be a really, really great episode. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna jinx it by saying it out loud. But um, look forward to it and definitely go check it out. And without further ado, let's jump into what we're talking about this week, which is a little movie that uh, actually I wouldn't be a bit surprised if you haven't heard of it from Studio Ghibli of all things called Whisper of the Heart. Now, if you haven't heard of Whisper of the Heart, I kind of can't blame you because it's uh, it's lower on the list of the kinds of Studio Ghibli movies that you would, that you normally encounter that you would normally want to see. Uh, it's it ends up being kind of coupled with a group of three Studio Ghibli movies specifically. And those movies I always think of as um, Kiki Delivery Service, Whisper of the Heart, and another Studio Ghibli movie that was actually made for TV that I have talked about on this channel. So if you, if this inspires you to go seek out Whisper of the Heart and you want more of that, like, 90s city vibe that this movie has for you in spades, definitely go check out the movie Ocean Waves. If you have no idea what Ocean Waves is, um, you can find out about it on this very podcast in whatever app you're using to listen to me right now. If it has a search function um, for the podcast you subscribe to, 
search for the ocean wave search ocean waves and you'll find my episode about it hopefully um but the reason why i hold these three movies in um in kind of concert with each other is what they're doing and i i've seen i've seen the studio ghibli library for the most part um, I think I think if I had to guess, I haven't seen the Red Turtle, which I'm not. That doesn't make me sad, honestly. Like it doesn't make me sad. I haven't seen the Red Turtle. Um, but the way I end up seeing this one again is I actually got the opportunity to go into the city. I'm to go into New York and see it at the Japan Society, which you've heard me mention a lot, and you'll hear me mention more in the future. Because they have a nightly, they have a monthly anime movie night. They show movies, basically pick a day of the week, and they probably are showing something that night. Um, now you have to join the Japan Society for an individual member. It's like sixty bucks. It's not sixty bucks a year. That's not terrible. It's less than you're paying a year for Netflix. Trust me. Um, but. For that, you get the privilege of $5 membership, of $5 tickets to just about anything. Most of the time, tickets to stuff they have there is about $15. Um, but if you're a member, it's 5 bucks, And that's, the, that's a hell... In, in the words of Brad Pitt, that's a hell of a deal. I'd take that deal. And I did. But the... So I went in to see the 35mm... Um, the presentation of the new 35 millimeter high res version of this of this film, and I've seen this film, I want to say, two or three times before. But I, it's not it's not a heavy rotation Ghibli movie for me. It's not something I can like recite back to you, kind of the way I can do with say a Spirited Away, or I can do with um, Prince Mononoke. I could definitely do with Prince Mononoke. I can, I can read that script from the inside of my skull as I watch it. It's a little unnerving. It's my favorite movie, so it makes sense. But I also own it, like, I own it digitally twice, and I own it physically twice, um, Prince of Monoki. But thanks to the Japan Society, I got to go see kind of one of the most divibiest um, Studio Ghibli movies, and really, that's why I hold it in concert with the other two that I talked, that I mentioned, Kiki's Delivery Service and Ocean's Waves, because there's a kind of there's a kind of meandering quality to um, Whisper of the Heart that doesn't really that seriously outside of Ocean Waves doesn't really exist in Studio Ghibli movies very often. It it has a it has a real mumblecore vibe to it at times. And, like, yes, Whisper of the Heart has a definitive story. It is a love story. But it's not... This movie kind of starts, and then it just kind of ends. It doesn't have the, it doesn't have the kind of shock and awe that you associate with something like um, a Spirited Away, or, once again, um, a Princess Monoki, or even something... That I would actually hold next to this concert of three, but not in the same vein because it's a very different thing, and that is Pompoco. And if you look at um, Kiki's Delivery Service and you look at um, 
If, if you look at most Studio Ghibli movies that people think of when they think of Studio Ghibli, they're directed by, um, they're directed by either Isao Takahata or they're directed by, um, by, uh, what's his face? By, um, Hayao Miyazaki, the hilarious old man. But Hayao, Hayao Miyazaki is actually the producer on this film. He's not the... He's not the director. A um, the director is a is actually an animator who would go to do extensive go on to do extensive work on as a key animator on this film, but also on um, on Princess Monoki going forward. A guy by the name of Kondo Yoshifumi, and you feel that difference in this film you feel that it's not an Isao Takahata or Hayao Miyazaki vision of a of what a Studio Ghibli movie is if you're wondering what that feels like what I would say best to you is go a go search out Ocean Waves it's it was also directed by a Studio Ghibli person who's not either of those things I'm pretty sure um but also go seek out um that uh, the Studio Ponux opening movie, which I um, it's like Witch something. I forget. I've talked about it on this podcast before. I have a commemorative ticket. You think I would remember the name? But it has a little bit of that. It has that Studio Ponux stuff. Has that did that um, Studio Ghibli flair because they've they're kind of like split off of. They are to Studio Ghibli what Trigger is to Studio Gainax, essentially. And they... So they have... They've like take, they take some of the magic with them, so to speak, in a weird way. But it's also from a perspective that isn't the biggest name in the building. And what I find interesting here is like looking at the staff list, Hayao Miyazaki is a producer on this. He is he is he did storyboards for this. He did um he did storyboards and he did the screenplay, but he didn't direct it. Which means like he did a lot of work on something for somebody else. And oftentimes when you hear about infamous anime directors, be it um Hayao Miyazaki or um what's his face? The guy who um Tomino. Hideki Tomino. I don't think that's his first name. Tomino. Anyway, um, you you associate them as kind of these blowhards, as kind of these people who have inevitably realized that they're creative forces, and so they like stand in the way of progress a little. But that's clearly not the case with Hayao Miyazaki. Like he he sees things and he likes them, and everybody gonna point to hit like the notorious quote he made about tales from Earthsea that it's not a very good movie even though his son directed it and he could have like had a more deft hand of saying like he did a great job for his first time he'll get better um but if you listen to what he says after the fact about that he's pretty remorseful he's pretty like I'm a terrible dad like the wind rises is a film essentially a, dealing with Hayao Miyazaki's guilt about being 
a fucking terrible dad to his kids. To his kid, Goro Miyazaki. And you can see that in Goro Miyazaki. If you watch um, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which is the, I think, best documentary about Studio Ghibli. Because it really gets at, like, what's at the core of that man of of Hayao, Ziyamaki, of Hayao Miyazaki. But it also gets at, like... Studio Ghibli as a place that you work. And, like, that they do, like, calis- like morning calisthenics, like, Japanese companies and schools do every morning. It's, it's, and they, they show you, like, they show you Hayao Miyazaki as an actual functioning person and not as, like, this god of animators. And they do, like, the team there does a good job of just being, like, Hayao Miyazaki's just a dude. Like, he, yes, he's, yes, he's very good at as an, he's a very good animator. He's a very good director of animation. And yes, he's like old man anime with a mistake, a clock all the time. But he's also a giant nerd, just like all of us. Like at the end of the day, like he's obsessed with planes, trains, and automobiles <laughs> in a way that like only nerds will recognize. You like you will see in him. You're like, oh, I see you. <laughs> Come on over. We had jackets made. It's fine. And most of his, like, disgust with the culture of anime fandom is more that, like, the dude just making a thing. Whether you love it or not isn't doesn't matter to him. And it probably, it probably stuns him to see, like, people cosplaying as him. Like, he, to, in his mind, he's just him like he's just a nerd like the rest of us it's not necessarily that important and so to see that and one of the things i think proves that is that this is their 10th movie this is studio ghibli's 10th film um uh whisper of the heart and he did all his work on it and then kondo yoshifumi directs it does all the key animation does the it's a key animator on it that's a big deal. That's a big deal just be like, you can do this. And he oftentimes doesn't do that. And that's why you get kind of the Studio Ghibli feel with his stuff. But if you look at, if you look just past that, if you look at Pompoko, if you look at Isao Takahata stuff, certainly. But um, if you look at Pompoko, if you look at Ocean Waves, if you look at Whisper of the Heart, you get a much different feel from those movies. You get a feel that almost... I don't want to say lose Hayao Miyazaki, but you get a feel that Hayao Miyazaki isn't really interested in. And you see him being interested in it the most in another Studio Ghibli movie I've talked about, in Pocoroso. Pocoroso has this like lazy, meandering quality to it that isn't that isn't very present in many other Studio Ghibli movies. Like, it, it, it moments of it are, but not to the degree that it is in um, Pocoroso. But that kind of, like, meandering quality exists. It's kind of the core, I, I think of, of the setting of Whisper of the Heart. The other thing about Whisper of the Heart that I think that people read into a lot rightfully so, is that it's about creativity. It's about, 
it's about creativity and craft in a real meaningful way. So um, this movie follows um, the our protagonist, uh, she, Shizuku Tsukushima, the or Tsukushima Shizuku, as she kind of at the at the opening of the movie, she is an avid reader and living in like mid nineties Tokyo, so like actual nineties, not like really kind of the eighties still nineties. Which if you've if you've listened to me on this podcast, and you've listened to me on. Um, the project I used to do with um, my best, with one of my best friends from college, Lauren, the Uncanny Curs. I one of our last episodes before we called it quits on that was me basically explaining my con my thinking behind like the cutoff of decades. Like it's not really the eighties until nineteen eighty five. Before that, you have a lot of instant. You have a lot of instances of cultural and like even like physical like architectural influence of the 70s that is still really dominant like you don't you don't think of like yes it's technically a new year, a new decade in 1980 but it's been it's been the 70s for a minute <laughs> so that stuff's still gonna be around in like the first couple years of the eighties, and but by the time you usually get to say something like the five year period, by the time you get to the middle, it is solidly like that is the nineties. So this film feels like the nineties. It does not the nineties of Tokyo. It does not feel like the eighties of Tokyo or the seventies of Tokyo. It feels or even the two thousands of Tokyo. It feels like, a very specific point in time. This is also true, and I'm going to keep coming back to Ocean Waves, of Ocean Waves, because Ocean Waves kind of had that same feel, almost, although the characters are aged up, and it's a different scenario and all that stuff. But you're witnessing, kind of over the course of the film, Shizuku explore her creativity and her drive and her craftsmanship as a creative person, as a person who wants to do something truly potentially creative with her life. And when the movie opens, you see kind of her chaotic life and you see this life that doesn't, that has room for exactly what's in it, but not much more. And... That And what this show, what the film kind of does is it shows Shizuku make a decision to make room for something she cares about. Make room for somebody she cares about, but also something she cares about. Because so often going, and I think this is a good, this is a good thing that this movie does. And it's great that this movie shows a family just being like, I, it just... At some point, Shizuku is so focused on writing the story that this movie, that the movie uses basically as a plot point, that she ignores her grades. She just decides, like, I don't have time for this shit. Like, this is taking time away from the thing I, as a human, as in my soul, feel I need to do. So I'm gonna put this on the back burner for 
a period of time. And it will always be there. Like, it doesn't super matter. And if it does, it will let me know it super matters. But I'm going to do this instead for now. And she kind of explains that to her parents the most she can. Her parents, her, her parents basically ask her a question once they figure out that she, her grades are severely dropping. They're like, what, what, what's going on, bud? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, are you, are you okay? Like, we're worried. We're like, not, we're not going to harp on the grades, although those are important. We're still East Asian, Japanese, tiger parents. But what the hell's happening? And she says, I have something I want to do. I don't necessarily, I'm not sure I want to go to high school. I have something I want to focus on. Like, I give me the shot to focus on it. And her parents, her mother is the most, um, her mother is the most kind of despondent at this. But she, she says reluctantly after her father's like, hey, how about we let her, like, get this out of her system, let her process whatever the hell's happening here, because it's clearly important to her. And her mother's like, okay. And yes, that's, like, chauvinistic male parentage important bullshit of Japanese culture. But it's, it's also two adults realizing that their kid had drive for something and allowing it to kind of flourish, kind of allowing the kid to explore it in a way that so often, especially when it comes to having drive to do something creative, isn't fostered in people. I, I obviously, I work as a creative person. I've worked as a creative person for my entire adult life. I've never really worked in what you would imagine a traditional office setting is. I've always worked as like a as a creative of some kind. I, for ten years, I worked as a graphic as a graphic designer, creative director, art director, all over New York City. And now I do something else. And that and when, but something really important happened to me in my five-year reunion. I never really... I mean, I kind of knew, but I didn't know to what extent when I was in high school. But when I was in high school, I never really understood that people... People saw in me something that you don't see in... that That made sense to them, but didn't yet make sense to me. They saw... That I was going to be a creative person. That I was going to do that as a profession. And I... I've... I've probably told this story before, but... You can't stop me, because I can't hear you. All you can do is listen to me, so... Mwaha. But I've told this story to many of my friends. I remember when I was... In high school, just like a... Just like a shit kid who kind of wanted to be an art... In, in our art program, which was in the dungeon. So I wanted to be in the art dungeon constantly... And I got pulled out of a class and called to the office. And my surprise, it wasn't about like some like something I did or some bullshit. It was the school the school administration 
wanted to ask me about a sculpture they wanted to put up in in like the front in like the fr- um, in front of the school of like sculpture of the of a cougar that would like covered in ceramic or something and my response was like what if what what the fuck are you asking me <laughs> i don't know if you've noticed i don't matter here <laughs> And something they said, and something my guidance counselor actually said, uh, and actually not my guidance counselor, I forget who said it in the office, was like, we're asking you because you're going to be the one who grows up to do this. You're going to be the one who grows up to be a creative person. And in that moment, I recognized that the adults in my life, that the adults in my educational career recognized that this was a stopgap for me. That that all of my education was leading to something that, like, yes, the stuff I learned in school would matter. But it wouldn't be all that important. Like, I wasn't going to have to know, who, like... No one was ever going to quiz you on who's going to sign... On who signed the Magna fucking Carta. Like... D- d- that's not what really would matter. What would matter is the fact that by my senior year, I'd figured out how to make most of my schedule art classes. How to how to pursue, how to really game the system to pursue the craft of making things, of creating things. And Shizuku, through, me, through first... Meeting a boy, because this is a romance thing. And then seeing how that boy was choosing to live his life. Kind of becomes aware of something she wants to do. Something she's always done kind of on the side. You know, for her friends and with her... For and with her friends, you know, for her own leisure. She all of a sudden sees a version of her she sees the version of herself that the educators in my life who had any eyeballs in their skull saw in me and that is a version of herself that does that as a living where that is the thing that she spends the majority of her time on that she dedicates herself to as a craft as a calling and that boy's name is um, Seiji Amasa, Amasa, Amasawa Seiji, or Seiji Amasawa. We'll call him Seiji for now, for, for the rest of the podcast, because I don't want to murder myself trying to pronounce that constantly. And the way she discovers this boy is she sees his name written in just about every single book she takes out from the library. Notices it with three and and there's a decent point here. This is a library that her father, I think, works at. Like, that her father works at. That her father probably works at as a librarian. Every book that um, Shizuku checks out of the library, she notices Seiji has checked it out before her. That this guy, that this guy Seiji, this person Seiji has checked it out before her. And that coincidence 
causes her to like imagine this mystical guy who's read all of her read all of the books she likes. And like she kind of falls in love with him immediately in her head. And then she is like I I have to read she becomes obsessed with it and she's like I have to read something he hasn't read. I have to like reclaim my personality. So she goes to the school nurse to at her at her middle school and begs her to open up the library because the school nurse is already is also the librarian, which makes a certain amount of sense. Um and librarian and the school nurse slash librarian's like, okay, fine, if it's that important. She goes to check out she goes to pick a book, picks it up, opens it up, and there's Sagey's name again. And from that she learns that it's got to be a student in school. Dude, yeah. And she asked if that's true to the librarian. And the librarian was like, yeah, it's a student from the school. It, actually, it's a student from... And the, some it's somebody who went to the school long before the person you're probably looking for was here. It's like, okay. And the, the way she knows this is the first checkout of this book ever which usually they put on like the front i've been the first to check library books out from schools usually that's a commemorative thing like they put it on the front they put it on the inside of the front cover is the amasawa family name and she's like that's odd and she So she's writing a song for her friends, and she and she keeps the song in this book, and she's writing a variation on the song that you'll hear at the beginning and probably end of this of this podcast because I have to I have to infect you with the song. It's a requirement of talking about this movie, and that's a song called Country Road. And Country Road was took took Japan by fucking storm in the 90s. Like, they became obsessed with this song. And the beginning of this movie kind of revolves around Shizuku translating this song into Japanese so her friends in choir can sing it. And she's like, why is this so, why is this so important that you sing this in Japanese? Because it's got things that that aren't translatable. Like, West Virginia, and the hook of the song, Country Road. So, like, it's always going to be a little fucked up if you translate it from English into Japanese. Because, <laughs> like, you're just some American loan words that will not translate over. And uh, I'll put a link to the YouTube video of, um, of, of a movie reviewer talking about this movie, and he goes through the actual history of Country Road, which is kind of as interesting as this movie. Um, But you should definitely check that out, because I don't want to get into it here. But she writes... So she writes... she, She translates that song, and then she writes a different version of it. 
that's all about growing up in the city and it's called Concrete Road. And it's very, it's very funny. It's very cute. It's meant as a joke. It's meant like, doesn't our hometown suck? Like, it sucks that we live in this big congested city. And it's, it's very, if only we could move out of the country, move into, move to the country, romanticized vibes. Um, as, as anime in general wants to do. Because anime has a, like, distinct vibe of, like, we're a little bit in the pocket of the government, and the government would like it if you moved back to the country, you dumb assholes, and started farming again. It would solve a lot of problems. But, um, she shows, like, Silver Spoon for government propaganda about starting a farm (laughs) in Japan. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm, you have no idea how little I'm kidding about that being true. <laughs> um, but the, so she gets distracted and her friend, her, there's an alternate storyline where her friend has a crush and like the crush approach, the crush talks to them and the friend freaks out and runs off. So Shizuku runs off. She leaves the book she checked out with the, with the song lyrics for Concrete Road in them. And Seiji finds him. And he returns them and he teases her about Concrete Road. And she gets all pissed off, storms off. Like, God damn it. Storms off. And then she's really frustrated and like it but then time progresses on, it's a new day, and she Is told she told by her mother like, "Hey, your father forgot lunch. Take it to him. You go. You go. It's Saturday. You go. I know you're going to the library anyway. Your dad works at the library. Take him his lunch." And she's like, "Fine." Not the first thing she wanted to do, but like kid shit. Like sh- shit, your parents still ask you to do when you're like old enough to realize that your parents are using you, <laughs> basically. And on the way, she gets distracted. And she thinks, oh, there's a start of a story here. And the story, the start of the story she finds is this cat. Who you end up, who end, uh, you end up re- realizing has a bunch of names, all starting with M, but the one you perceive him as the most is Moon. Because that's the first name you learn for him. And his cat's on the train for some reason. This cat is essentially... Commuting cross town and like is it this cat is weirdly a bunch of family's cat <laughs> and he does catch it he like teases a neighborhood dog and all this stuff and he he eventually stopped by this shop and the shop has this beautiful old statue called I I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this name because this name is fucking German um <laughs> not even Japanese German the statue name is Baron Humbert von Ginkengen and it's like barely German <laughs> Ginkengen awfully Japanese sounded fucking digitally come on um but it's a statue of a cat. 
and this cat uh, makes um, an appearance in um, the spinoff, which is The Cat Returns, which is another Studio Ghibli film, but which is the Studio Ghibli film that is the story that Shizuku wrote. And, like, one thing leads to another, and she finds out that Seiji is the grandson of the shop's owner, a kindly, a kindly Ghibli old man named, um, Shiro, named Shiro Nishi. And Shiro Nishi is a woodworker. And Seiji is hoping to be a violin maker. And Shizuku is so kind of entranced by the fact that Seiji has this goal. That she realizes she doesn't really have a goal, but she does have a thing she loves to do. And so she asks uh, Shiro if she can, you know, write a story about... If she can, know, A, know more about the... And I'm leaving a lot out intentionally because you really should see this film for yourself. Um, it's kind of available everywhere. It's most readily available probably on HBO Max. But... She asks him more about the, um, about the, about the statue, and he tells her more, and she asks his permission to use the statue as source of inspiration for a, um, for a story she wants to write. And she says, absolutely, on one condition, and she's like, what? She's like, I have to be the first to read the story. And this is really what cement and Seiji and Shizuku's relationship is one thing in this movie, but Seiji's but Shizuku's relationship to Shiro is actually really interesting because in this movie, Seiji and Shiro are kind of at the same places in their creative lives. They are. Creative people who are trying to find their way, hone their craft, and they're not sure if they can do it. They don't. They haven't been doing it for a decade plus. They, they're not me. They're, you know, new art school students. Very new art school students. But they are pre-art school students. They are taking pre-college classes when they are in their teens. So hopefully, and discovering what they want to. To do with their lives, hopefully. Professionally or otherwise, I should make that clear. And as a result, what Nishi is, is Nishi is somebody who has been through it. He he like he the the, the kids the kids in this movie are going through it in a real way. Nishi has gone through it, son. And he understands he understands the feelings and emotions that come with needing to iron out the kinks in your cre in your creativity, needing to push yourself. And while he may push himself, the way he pushes himself is an entirely different thing than the way Shizuku or Seiji pushes themselves. Um so I don't often talk about I I Talk about work a little on the podcast, but I don't necessarily love all the time what I do. I I specifically I still do something creative, absolutely. But I took the effort of 
divorcing kind of what I love to do from what I do for a living for a very specific reason of I wanted to make money so I could do things in my free time that were more creative, more fulfilling, like recording this podcast. I draw all the time. I, you know, I three print. I have taken from design to model to print my own anime figure, which I can turn around and look at right now, which is a very cool thing. You can see that on my Instagram. Um, I included it as a link before in the podcast very recently. But, um, where I am at, where I'm at right now is I'm pretty confident in my creative ability. I, I'm, I am capable of just solving for creative, for, for problems in a way that Oftentimes, you don't have, you just don't have, really not the ability or skill when you are young creative, but you don't have the confidence to do it. You don't have the, you don't just have the confidence of will to know, like, this is the solution. Like, so what I do for a living, and I've mentioned this before again, but what I do for a living is I am essentially a interior designer, but for the outdoors. I, I, what I call what I call curate furniture for high high end designer outdoor furniture for wealthy clientele, basically. And when I'm looking at something, when I'm looking at things, like I I start with I usually start with like a chair and then I go out from there. But at a point I'm referencing things in my head that I just know to be true. Like I know if I want a certain look, I go to one company. If I want another look, I won't go to another company. Or if I want a cohesive look from a bunch of companies, these are the pieces, these are the kinds of pieces I look for from like this company and that company and this company and that company. And that's a real skill. But when you're starting, you don't know to do that. You don't know, you don't know, you, it's almost a, you don't know what you don't know. It's an unknown, unknown thing. And that's really what you see. That's what you see Seiji struggling with, and what you start to see Shizuku struggling with. And what inspired. What inspires Shizuku to struggle, to attempt to struggle with, to even attempt to struggle with it, is seeing. The guy she had to crush on struggle with it. And ultimately that ends in a marriage proposal at the end of this movie. In a very like sweet, touching moment at the end of this movie. But what it starts out as is it starts out as a little girl, a, a, a young girl, not a little girl, but a, a, a like 14-year-old girl pushing at putting real effort into a creative pursuit for the first time and really like asking a lot of her life to move out of the way of her pursuing that and her trying that on for a moment and her possibly you're not quite sure pursuing that later in life like for like once she has a high school degree going to college for writing 
at, but and this is the thing that I think and if you if somehow I have parents listening to this if your kid wants to draw there's a there's a way to like do that there's a way and if you're a kid who wants to draw and you're listening to this there's ways to do that professionally like the and it will be okay. It will take a lot of work. It will not be a straight line. But the professionalized world is there for you somehow. And what this show... what I keep calling it a show, damn it. What this film does so well is it shows... It shows the struggle of creating... But it shows it while also keeping in mind that there are people out there who have succeeded at it. And you, when you see when you see Shiro when you see Shiro when you meet Shiro and you see his the shop that um, the Baron statue is in, you realize that it's not it's not a thing he needs to do anymore. Like he he doesn't need to do this. He is very clearly already fulfilled and already successful, the shop is just an odd thing he likes to run sometimes. It's not even open constantly. It, it, the, the film, and Seiji says it much in the film, makes a point of saying, like, eh, it's, it's an odd shop. It, it, it opens whenever Shiro wants it to be open. And that suggests a kind of, like, that that's a version of success. Like, she... You meet Shiro and all of his, like, hilarious band friends at one point in this movie. And they all seem like successful people. They all seem like they've, they've, they've like... They've, they're clearly, like, coming back from, like, having dinner together and, like, having a good time. They, they seem like they've... They've seen... They've... They've reached where they wanted to be creatively. And I'm not saying I'm there yet. I'm far from there yet. But Seiji and Shizuku in this film in this film are both struggling with that. And the film is a lot about the struggle of being creatively talented, but not gifted in craft if that makes any sense. Because there is a difference. And the the line can blur, but the line can also be bright as daylight. You know, when you, when you as a creative person first encounter somebody who has a, like, a mastery over craft, over the craft of creating, over the skill required to make a thing your brain will just melt in your skull. It will... You'll never... You'll kind of never forget it. Um, I was talking to somebody, and I was talking to somebody who I've known for a long time, and I recounted the first time I went to... I, I actually went to an advertising agency, which was an odd thing because it was actually a field trip. We took a field trip when I was, when I was in high school, um, and early on in high school, I think, like, maybe even freshman, sophomore year, to Ogilvy, like, our art teacher got us an in, in, had, figured out a way to get us into Ogilvy, the famed advertising studio, Ogilvy and Mather. 
and I still have the um the little portfolio book they gave us, so like the little portfolio of their work from that period of time that they gave us. And we met a team, we met a, a creative team that worked on a Hershey Kiss ad. Actually, the Hershey Kiss ad that um, is like the barnyard square dance one. And they talked about just the craft of like researching and doing all that work. And it was a real, like, it was really inspiring for me. It's still really inspiring for me. And the person who said, who I was talking to, said, like, yeah, you, like, that's. You talk about that all the time still. That's, that sticks with you and it's and like you light up when you talk about it. I'm like, yeah. And they have a little bit of it in this film. Of Shizuku recognizing in Seiji somebody who is honing a craft and Seiji recognizing in his grandfather, Shiro, Someone who is a master craftsman. And then in turn, Shiro straight up just saying to Shizuku, you're st once he reads the story towards the end of the film, like your, your story is beautiful. It's, it's rough. It's unfinished. It needs work. But it's beautiful. You and Seiji are similar in that way. And they have a, like, they have a, they have a MacGuffin. <laughs> To explain that, of, like, this, like, geode that hasn't been cracked open yet and needs to be, like, polished to perfection is the way Shiro says it. But, and he says, like, but with time, you'll you'll get better at it. I encourage you to take your time and, like, polish your craft and, like, go at an even pace and go and develop your craft and don't kill yourself. And that, that's a hard lesson to learn. And, and really when you meet, when you meet master craft people, when you meet people are truly creative, who are like truly creative and manage to do it for a living, like me or somebody else, there comes a time in your creative life when you stop all of it needing to be this like big, beautiful, heart-stopping moments and you start Start loving smaller things. You like less dramatic things start to impress you more than the big dramatic things did. You know, you start appreciating the quieter moments rather than the louder moments. And yes, you still produce big, loud, beautiful things. But what you but what you appreciate about them. It's the small, delicate touches that coalesce into the big, beautiful majesty that of whatever other people are perceiving you made. So I want to talk about the Sagrada Familia for a second, and I want to talk about drawing for a second. It, I've seen Sagrada Familia in person. I have tons of pictures of this damn thing because it demands to, be, to have pictures taken of it when you are in its presence. Um, a sim another similar thing is Notre Dame also demands this, but they demand it in different ways. And they demand it in, same way, in the same way, actually, in that it's not when you're in front of them, when you are in them, it's not 
and you should be respectful because they are both working churches. Like they are both active, like youth churches. Probably not the probably not Notre Dame anymore since since the fire, but at the time it was. Um, it's like a place people go to church. And this is especially true of the Sagrada Familia, although also true of Notre Dame. What what you see in the pictures you see of the Sagrada Familia, especially, not so much in Notre Dame, but in the Sagrada Familia, is you see the majesty of the thing. You see this, like, hardcore, just holy shit of the thing. What you see when you see it, it's no less impressive, but it's much smaller. It's it's the understanding that complexity is that the complexity of the Sakura Familia is simply the simplicity of its pieces piled on top of each other. It is not it is not as loud and as bold as all that. And this is true of most big architectural wonders, and I've seen a couple. It is actually just the quiet pieces kind of combining in chorus and resulting in the thing you see in front of you. Now, I want to talk about drawing for a second in the same vein. What you see on Instagram Reels and TikTok of drawing is not the reality of drawing. It is... People who draw like me, like pe- people who illustrate like, once again, me, it is us flexing in front of you. It is us being entirely too vain and saying, look at me, look at me, because we're proud of what we did. What you don't necessarily see, and I saw this actually recently, um, of, I think her, I think her handle is Kiv Bowie. Um, I support, uh, I support a... I support what many would deem is a financially irresponsible amount of people on Patreon. (laughs) And one of them, she posted this draw, she posted this drawing video that was really unique because it was like showing her coloring things in and like not getting the line perfect the first time and stuff like that. Because oftentimes what you see is you see just glamour shots of like nearly completed or completed art. You don't see the fact that, like, when I when I draw nodes as an illustrator, I draw the rough shape first, and then I go back in and I actually erase away what I want. And this is a lot of my drawing process to come out with the perfect shape that I think that, like, the nostril should be, that the lips should be, that the corners of the lips should be, that, like, the eyelashes should be. Are there those perfect strokes where my my brain just leaves my body and it's pure skill and talent? Yes. But it's also me massaging things and like just like kind of making things ever so. And what you're seeing oftentimes is you're seeing a time-lapse drawing or you're seeing like the best representation you could possibly see of somebody's drawing skill. You're not seeing the nine times that they pulled the a line, and it was a little fucking crooked in the middle. And what this 
film endeavors to show is is endeavors to show the real the as of as Shizuku's parents put it, it endeavors to show the trials that creative people put themselves through. And it necessarily makes the makes the trials stand out for Shizuku so it can have the conversation about them. And so it can have somebody who has who had been through a lot of trials and is still putting himself through trials, I'm sure. Say to say to somebody who is just starting, who is just starting to go through those trials, or is in the middle of really of a really volatile point in those trials. It's not going to happen for you overnight. You're not going to be perfect, but that's the point. Like it, it was the speech that Shiro um, gives to Shizuku is almost. If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be worth doing. You wouldn't want it so bad. So just slow down. Take your time. Don't let don't let your effort to create destroy you because then you can't create something. And like one of the biggest jokes in video games is like we got to let like we got to let Sakurai sleep for 10 years in between Smash Brothers releases. Because the man Wakes like comes out of the gate swinging every time, and he's so he burns hot and he burns fast, and like everybody's fucking worried about Sakurai in the same way that everybody's worried about um the author of Yu Hakusho and Hunter X Hunter, I, and people say like and the that author I forget his name um he's married he's I think he's married to um the author of. I know he's married to the author of Sailor Moon. But if you look at the author of Sailor Moon, you look at the author of Hunter x Hunter, you see two different takes on creativity. You see somebody who created something and is wholly happy to, like, police the shit out of that thing, A, in the form of Sailor Moon. And also just kind of, like, let that creation be. Let that exist for people. She is very clearly not had the urge that's big enough to make a new thing. Whereas the author of um, Yu Hakusho and then Hunter x Hunter burned himself out on Yu Yu Hakusho. He, like, he exists in a way that is unrecoverable because of his work, because of his tireless efforts at creating the thing that is like a one-of-a-kind thing, absolutely, in Yu Yu Hakusho. And then eventually, he did it again with Hunter x Hunter. What did that look like? What did it look like to achieve at that level and then achieve at that level again and just, like, step back up to the plate and hit another home run? The reality is that people do that all the time. <laughs> like, I... And we just never realize it. They're, the people who make Ikea furniture bang it out, have hits and misses. And who knows how many misses, you know, a famous manga author has in their life. It, everybody... Everybody's going insane right now for, um... 
for the for for anything by the author of one of um Chainsaw Man, and people are finding um Fire Punch, people are finding weird shit he's wrote he's written other times, but you have no idea how many things he's probably written that are in a drawer, that are all probably also spark of genius in the same way that like a chain a Chainsaw Man or a Fire Punch do. But are also just too fucking weird. Like, they're just not good. And so much of what creativity is about, so much of what so much of what creativity is projected to be about to the general public, to to what I always think of as civilians <laughs> is about I produce this thing, isn't it glorious and beautiful? It is not about the work that it took to produce that thing. And um so I and I've talked about I've talked about this before on the podcast too. I've started collecting watches. One of the things I find so beautiful about watches is the like masterful craft and engineering and creativity that it takes to make a thing that is for a singular purpose. It's part of the reason why I have an Apple Watch. It sits in its charging stand and kind of doesn't move anymore. I, I, I can wear it if I want to, and sometimes I do. But oftentimes, I'll wake up and I'll go to my now expanding watch collection. I'll pick the watch I want to wear that day, and I will look down and I'll smile because it will... It is... It is a home run hit from somebody... From a from creative craft people who just they just do this for a living. And once again, I'll never see the nine hundred sketches for say the watch I'm wearing right now, which is the Seiko Five Limited Edition One Piece Zoro. I'll never see the nine hundred sketches that somebody did before they got to this specific green dial, this specific layout, this specific bezel. But as a creative person, I know that to be true. And if you look at, if you look at people who appreciate the arts, if you look at people who truly appreciate, like, the, and I think this is true of Hayao Miyazaki, actually. I'm, it can't not be. You see it in him. (laughs) When he talks about his inspiration for certain parts of, say, of well-known movies he's directed and created. That... That drive, that... creative spark, when oftentimes successful professional artists have a tendency to surround ourselves with that. Like... I have tons of anime figures. I'm like I can stare at them in every direction. I've designed anime figures myself and printed one. You know, I we see if people appreciate that even if they don't realize they do they are they're what they're appreciating is they're appreciating the drive. They're appreciating all the steps that led up to it. They may never see it because that's never how the create that's not how the capitalism expresses expresses creativity best f- as a product for you to purchase 
but there's value in it. And as anybody who's used, who switched from one platform to another because of something they like better than one can attest, there's value in design, there's value in that creativity. But it's nice to have a film that's just about the active creating that's really about the struggle of the act of creating and have a film that basically tells you okay you've discovered how much you love to make things here's how you also stay alive <laughs> here's how you like exist in the world because and this is, I think this is really, really true of the world. The world wants, and I'll leave it here actually, the world wants you to be, wants to treat creatives like golden gods, like we are indescribable. And as a creative person, when you, and I see this in um, my profession, in my, in my, in one of my, in my junior colleague currently, you when you first become a creative person, you you have this drive, and the drive never leaves. It just changes over time, but it 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 softens into something else. You have this idea that like you have to be that like you have to be the designer, like the the antithesis of what a designer is, and eventually, what you kind of realize is like. That's what you need to be professionally. Like you can still be a schlub around the house. You can still like you can ha you can wear beautiful clothes, and if that's the thing you love to do, by all means, do it. I I'm wearing a cardigan. I absolutely fucking love, and I think it's beautiful. But you start to realize that in your day to day life, you don't need to play the part. You don't need to be like you don't need to be the richest fuck awesome, cool, designery looking person. If you want that, you can be that. Part and parts of that will persist. Part of the reason why also why I love watches is because it's a status thing. It's like a status symbol to wear a nice watch. Like it, I don't want to be like everybody else who's wearing an Apple watch, so I started collecting mechanical and quartz watches. But I also wear what I like. Like I, I've, I'm wearing a Seiko now. I'll wear a. I might wear a Casio tomorrow. I might wear a like. I might wear the Apple Watch after that. It's all about what I want and what I want to express through what I'm wearing. But when I go into a meeting, I also know how to turn it on and how to like. Okay, if I'm going into this meeting, this watch is good for that meeting. Put it on. Put you essentially put on the costume of what people expect for creative, and that is that is part of the business of being creative. It's not part of the passion. And the problem, but the problem there is by expecting that out of our creatives by teaching by teaching potential creative people that this is how you are. You encourage them to push themselves so hard they burn out because they all they ever see is the perfection of it. They see, oh my god, this person on Twitter is so good. Their work is amazing. 
I'll never be there unless I push myself so hard I vomit. And this movie is softly saying, like, you'll get there. You, you'll get to the point where it's effortless. You'll get to the point where you're perceiving that it's effortless. But what you'll actually get to is something different. You'll get to a point where it's more skill than talent. Where, yes, you still, the, the talent that drove you early is still there, but you'll have so much, you'll have so much skill, the craft of whatever you're doing creatively, that it's, it's less, it's less you trying to fake it till you make it. It's less you playing the part. It's less you living the lifestyle all the time. And uh, that's what I see in a lot of young, cre- young creative people. Is they want, they want to be like, and I even see it in young otaku, young anime fans. Like they want to be so aggressively fans of things. When really, like you don't need to shout it from the rooftops. Like you can, like if somebody wants to listen to you talk about why you know Sword Art Online is great, they'll listen. I mean, or what? Or in my case, why Log Horizon is miles better than Sword Art Online? Sword Art Online, they'll listen. But like those people will come to you in time, the same way listeners of this podcast will come to you in time. The reason why I stress go listen to Pantheon is because I watched that and in my mind that show deserves your attention regardless whether or not it's an anime. And I'm okay with people not listening to that. Like I at the end of the day, like does it make my heart sink a little that it hasn't reached ten yet or whatever? Yes. But it's not gonna break me. Like it's not it's not an the end of the world. The sun still comes up tomorrow. And that that's really kind of the overarching message of this movie. Yes, the love story is cute as hell. But what this movie kind of says to its two romantic leads is don't let your creativity get in the way of your life. Because the thing that fuels your creativity, the thing that keeps you going is the everyday it is you know going through school and learning new things and meeting new people and falling in love and falling out of love and getting married and proposing and all of it and that's just a really sweet thing and it was really great to see it in glorious 35 millimeter thanks to the japan society so on that note if you like this podcast new episodes come out every third day and sunday if you are interested in Japanese culture and um, the anime industry and all that stuff, I encourage you to listen to the um, Sunday edition. Definitely check out the Sunday edition happening this Sunday because it will be a ton of fun. I can promise that either way. But um, I hope everything that I've got lined up should fall into place and should be perfect and that should come out this Sunday. If it doesn't, I'll let you know. But um Thursday editions are more like this. They're more about a specific show or property or film or something. Um but 
Until next time, I have been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. I will talk to you on Sunday.